Hello and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevenson Harwood's employment team. You can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Parvis Garney and I'm an employment partner in the Stevenson Harwood Employment Group. So with me today, I've got Serena Folks, who's one of our associates in our team. In this month's podcast, Serena and I are going to discuss legal professional privilege and internal investigations carried out into disciplinary or regulatory issues. Now, ensuring that a document is privileged is very important where an employer wishes to keep that document private from a court, a counterparty in litigation, or even an external authority like a regulator, the serious fraud office or the police. We'll look at the issues that have arisen in this area following a recent Court of Appeal case, uh, the case of uh, SFO, or the Serious Fraud Office, versus uh, Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation Limited. We'll then highlight some of the key risk areas and offer some practical guidance for employers who need to carry out internal investigations. In this podcast, we'll discuss what is legal professional privilege and when does it apply? What sort of internal investigations might an employer want to be covered by legal privilege? What issues have arisen in the recent case of the SFO and ENRC? Practical tips for employers on how to retain privilege over their most sensitive investigation documents. So Parvis, let's turn to legal professional privilege and talk through the two types of privilege and when they arise. Thanks, Serena. So there are two types of legal professional privilege in the UK. The first is legal advice privilege and the second is litigation privilege. Now these are fundamental rights that arise from common law rather than statute. So turning to legal advice privilege, now in summary, this arises when a client issues confidential communications to its lawyer for the purpose of obtaining legal advice, and it also covers the responses and advice given by that lawyer. So typically, this would be an email sent by, for example, a HR officer or in-house counsel to external counsel asking for advice on how to deal with a HR issue, like whether an employee has committed misconduct or how to deal with a grievance. Now, legal advice privilege should cover all the advice given by the lawyer, including advice given by email or letter and advice given verbally on the phone or in a meeting. Now, turning to the second type of privilege, litigation advice privilege, this privilege covers documents and other communications that are produced for the dominant purpose of being used in relation to legal proceedings that are being contemplated by the employer. So a good example of this is where a potential witness is asked by HR for information about a tribunal claim that has been filed. So, for example, what was said during a meeting or why they thought the individual was a poor performer. Now, this information is then considered and factored into the defence to the claim. Now, there are important points to consider in relation to both of these types of privilege. Privilege is generally created at the time that the document or communication is created. It's difficult to try to apply privilege later on if it hasn't been applied from the beginning. Also, once a document loses privilege, it's very difficult to regain that privilege. For legal advice privilege to be retained, the advice must be sought by and provided to a particular client group. So it wouldn't necessarily cover communications where advice is being forwarded beyond the limited group of individuals seeking the advice and the lawyers providing it. Privilege can be lost where the advice is spread too widely within the client. So for example, the legal advice is shared to several other employees who haven't been involved in obtaining the advice. So the client group should be kept narrow and tightly confined to avoid this risk of privilege being lost. Now for litigation privilege, this can be broader and can cover communications sent within a client in order to gather information to use in relation to a claim. The key points for litigation privilege are that litigation must be actual, pending or contemplated and also the communications must be produced for the dominant purpose of use in those proceedings. So communications being sent around a business in relation to an employee issue are unlikely to be privileged unless litigation is reasonably contemplated and they are being sent for the purpose of that litigation 
or if they can be covered by legal advice privilege. Thanks, Parvis. So we'll now look at internal investigations and the typical investigations that employers need to carry out and why they might want some of the documents to be privileged. Employers will carry out various internal investigations that might not need to be privileged. For example, grievance and disciplinary investigations where they feel comfortable handling these with minimal or even no legal input. The investigations themselves are conducted by the grievance or the disciplinary manager and interview notes and the contents of internal discussions not involving legal advisers would ordinarily be disclosable in any later proceedings like an employment tribunal claim. This is important to show a fair and proper process was followed. However, where investigations are more complex, it can be very important to seek legal advice on not only the potential risks of an issue, but also on the content of the materials that are being investigated. Some examples of this are investigations into highly sensitive allegations of sexual harassment or other discrimination. This could also apply for investigations following whistleblowing allegations about regulatory breaches and other compliance issues like market abuse or bribery. As the legal issues can be complex and very sensitive, it's advisable for employers to seek legal advice from an early stage and to keep seeking advice as the investigation proceeds and in relation to the investigation's conclusions and the next steps for the business. Often it would be beneficial for employers to obtain input from external counsel to conduct the investigation itself to try to ensure that the materials produced during the investigation and the outcome of the investigation are all kept confidential and privileged. Retaining privilege is important for clients so they can be open and honest with their legal advisors about the information that has been uncovered during the investigation and what their options are for dealing with the resultant risks for the business. If they don't have privilege, then they may not investigate the matter for fear of unintentionally creating documents that would help any regulator or counterparty in litigation to win proceedings against them. Of course, by contrast, counterparties in litigation, regulators and authorities like the Serious Fraud Office will often want to obtain copies of any documents that might reveal the company's concerns about its legal risks and its options, as these can be highly damaging to the company's case if revealed in litigation or other proceedings. Parvis, do you want to talk briefly about the implications of the recent case of the SFO and ENRC? So as you mentioned, this recent case has brought a spotlight on privilege. The courts are increasingly taking a more robust approach and ruling that documents are not privileged and disclosable in circumstances where previously this wouldn't have been expected. So now in the ENRC case, ENRC Limited had begun an internal investigation into alleged corruption and fraud in its Kazakh and African operations. The SFO then opened a criminal investigation into them in April 2013. They sought disclosure of various documents created by ENRC's lawyers and accountants during the internal investigation. These included interview notes with ENRC employees and others and materials relating to books and records reviews and presentations given to ENRC's board and governance committee about the investigation's findings. Now, ENRC refused to comply, and what they argued was that the documents were, of course, covered by litigation and legal advice privilege. This went up to the High Court, and in their view, the documents had been created at too early a stage for criminal proceedings to be reasonably contemplated, and they had not been prepared for the dominant purpose of such proceedings. The SFO investigation, now while contemplated, did not qualify as litigation. So the High Court, they found that very few of the documents were covered by legal advice privilege. In their view, the information in most of the documents was provided for the purpose of fact-finding rather than to obtain legal advice and it had in any case not been provided by persons in the client group, which were those authorised by ENRC to seek or receive legal advice. Now, understandably, this decision was quite worrying for corporates and uh, lawyers due to the restrictions they had placed on litigation privilege. Fortunately, this went up to the Court of Appeal, and fortunately, they overturned the High Court's decision. 
They found that the documents were in fact protected by litigation privilege because litigation was in reasonable contemplation from the point at which ENRC engaged lawyers to conduct the internal investigation. And they also found that it had been created for the dominant purpose of resisting or avoiding such proceedings. So I'd say their decision was widely welcomed as it better reflects how multinational companies operate in the context of whistleblowing allegations and suspected regulatory or criminal breaches. It acknowledges that large corporates and multinational businesses will need extensive legal advice and will have numerous individuals representing the client based in different locations. So in this case, the business had engaged forensic accountants to review accounts and company books as part of an investigation by its external lawyers into whether there had been a contravention of various anti-corruption and accounting legislation. ENRC sought to assert privilege over not only the final legal advice provided but also the contents of every interview conducted by the lawyers and the entire work product of the forensic accountants engaged by the lawyers for the purpose of their investigation. The Court of Appeal held that this material was all privilege and not disclosable to the court. Now, however, the case has brought privilege into focus again, and together with other recent cases concerning privilege, it will have emboldened authorities and counterparties in litigation to take a more aggressive approach when privilege does apply to documents that could potentially benefit their cases. It can be hugely time-consuming and expensive to try to retrospectively justify claims of privilege in later proceedings. Privilege issues also arise in the context of data subject access requests, as companies can resist disclosing documents to the data subject that are protected by legal professional privilege. We are seeing an increase in employees and former employees and their representatives challenging companies to justify why documents are privileged and therefore not disclosable during a DSAR or litigation process. So Parvis, what practical tips would you give employers on how to attract and retain privilege over documents produced during an internal investigation? Okay, so I'm just going to run through five points which I think employees should keep in mind and will help them navigate through this tricky area. Now, the first point is that the group of employees to be classed as the client and involved in the receipt of legal advice should be not only narrow, but specified in writing from the outset. This means that a clearly defined working group should be established very early on who are each entitled to seek and receive legal advice on behalf of the company. This could be, say, five members of the senior management team plus an in-house lawyer and a HR professional. The names of the group members should be recorded in writing from the start. It shouldn't be the entire management team if they don't all need to be involved in the advice process. Privileged documents and advice shouldn't be shared beyond this group and the client group should be kept under review. If individuals needed to be added into the group or removed, then this should be recorded in writing. The second point is privileged documents about legal advice need to be kept confidential. This is a fundamental part of privilege and accidental disclosures of advice can lead to privilege being lost. This means that the confidentiality of the advice must be paramount. The third practical tip is that it should be clear that communications are being sent for the purpose of receiving legal advice. So if the client group is clear, then this makes it easier to identify why communication is being sent. Simply labelling a document or email legally privileged and confidential won't be sufficient to ensure that it is privileged. But clients should certainly do this labelling exercise to help show which documents are and which are not intended to be privileged. The same labelling exercise can happen at the start of telephone calls where legal advice is sought or received. The fourth practical point is that it should be made clear whether in-house lawyers are conducting investigations or producing their opinions in their role as lawyers or in an internal investigatory role. Privilege is often lost where in-house lawyers take on a management role, so for example investigating a grievance rather than a strictly legal advisory role. If the contents of the investigation should be disclosable, so for example a disciplinary investigation, then it's often preferable for them to be conducted by a manager with the expectation that the documents and findings will be disclosable later on. 
If required, then legal advice can be provided by in-house legal on a confidential, privileged and entirely separate basis. The fifth and final point is if litigation is potentially on the horizon, then the reason for this should be recorded in writing at the earliest opportunity to try to ensure that the broader litigation advice privilege is retained. This is particularly the case where advisors who are not lawyers, like accountants or crisis managers, are going to be engaged to provide their expertise as part of a legal investigation into whistleblowing or serious allegations about employees. As before, the client group should be defined and confidentiality should be paramount, but there is less of a concern about gathering and sharing information within the business if litigation privilege has been engaged. Thanks, Parvis. To add to that, it's worth bearing in mind that employers should be aware of what advice is sought from their advisors. Legal advice privilege can be lost in extreme cases where a court finds that iniquity has occurred, for example, where legal advice is being given to aid an act of discrimination or a criminal offence. This happens very rarely, but it is something to bear in mind. So those are our key tips on attracting and retaining privilege. Thank you, Parvis, and thanks to all of you for listening. Just a reminder that you can listen again to our podcasts and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud, or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (music) 